You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. As a governance model, we need to realize that we are here to serve uh, citizens or users who of our services, and we need to start looking at them from a, a perspective of how do we make the connection of all of the different things we, we do to govern a country in a way that does not burden the individual or individuals, and they feel as if they are being served by one governance model rather than multiple governance models. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. There has never been a better time to capitalize on the potential of data analytics, and we've just begun to scratch the surface of possible applications. If governments can unlock this potential, they will be making smarter decisions today and plan better to meet the changing needs of citizens and societies in the future. For over a decade, we've been hearing about a revolution in big data and analytics, and the COVID-19 pandemic has brought good science and the need for reliable data back into the heart of government decision-making. Now, governments around the world are investing in data as a powerful means of controlling the outbreak, along with helping economies recover. Data analytics offers a way to allocate resources more effectively, optimize operations, reduce operating costs, and tailor services to the specific needs of their citizens and communities. Perhaps the most exciting development is that big data is transcending boundaries, enabling collaborative problem solving on global issues from pandemics to climate change. Our societies are really producing and storing more data than ever before, and the rapid increase in computing power and development of new analytical tools means that data sets can now be combined and manipulated to identify patterns and interrelationships that were impossible to detect. Advanced simulation models can also help us predict future trends. In the private sector, data is already a source of huge competitive advantage. Many established companies have been challenged by startups that have disrupted their industry by designing radical new business models. Data-centric service providers like Netflix and Uber really excel at using analytics to improve their operations, target their products, and deliver an exceptional customer experience. However, unlike the private sector, governments have no real competitors to provide the spur for change. The impetus must come from within, and that impetus is now gathering force, and the constraints that held governments back in the past are being overcome. Around the world, pioneering governments are harnessing data analytics to safeguard children, reduce crime, combat fraud, and save lives. Government and public sector agencies are investing in more flexible IT infrastructures, such as APIs, to facilitate interoperability and information sharing. They're improving collaboration through joint target setting and integrated approaches to service delivery, while actively managing data so that it's a fit for analysis. And... They're reassuring citizens that their data will be kept safe and used only for the greater good, as is the case with new health apps that track individuals' location and contacts to prevent future COVID-19 outbreaks. On today's show, I have Mohamed Sear, a public sector futurist and e-government advisor working for EY, and we're going to discuss the most important enablers for governments wanting to unleash the power of data analytics, along with some predictions he has for the future of government. Mohammed, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today, buddy. Thank you, Brian. And it's really a pleasure to be here. And thank you for inviting me. One of the things I love about the era we're in right now is I can sit 
within my studio and have a conversation with you across the world sitting over in Dubai. So I, I'm really interested to get some of your your global takes on things. I think my audience will as well. And we've worked together in the past, so I, I know some of the the things you're working on are really cool. But as a futurist and an e-government advisor, um, help my audience understand what are the things that that you're doing to help drive uh, digital government forward? Well, firstly, Brian, as you said, it's really great that uh, we are able to connect from different parts of the world and have conversations. And uh, this technology is not new, it's been there. But COVID has brought all of this to the forefront. Um, we would have thought before the only way to meet was to meet in person or pick up the phone. Now it's become common for all of us to reach out to different parts, uh, people in different parts of the world and uh, have uh, conversations, share knowledge and build relationships. Coming to the, the question that you have just asked in terms of what is uh, keeping me busy, honestly, it is more about trying to think beyond where we are today. And I'm trying to um, think what are the signals I'm getting from the trends that are either emerging or about about to emerge and how can we help shape some concepts and ideas, points of view that can be put in front of government leaders who are in the process of making decisions or thinking of how they can change the way their government operates, how they can embrace different emerging technologies. And in particular, what I'm trying to do is get them to break away from the conventional thinking of let's look at digital transformation to let's look at reimagining our self for the digital era. Look at how we reimagine the role and model of governance in a country when we have so much power at our disposal from emerging technologies and particularly now that we have the opportunity to generate new kinds of data that we haven't been able to do before and bring that all together into in a way and drive insights from that so these this is really at the heart of what i'm trying to do with conversations around uh, the region and broader that's really interesting what are what are some of the challenges you have when you're working with these some of these government leaders because i know i have conversations with with folks like this all the time and and one of the struggles that they have is really maintaining what they already have in place right we've we've had conversations around some of the the budgetary lacks uh, that government have to innovate. So how do you get them to take a look at more forward-facing things three, five, ten years down the road when they're struggling in situations with what they already have right now? It's not easy, but I must say that there is an appetite, especially woken up from COVID, that they want to see beyond uh, today and tomorrow. They want to look at what could be far beyond the next 10 to 15 years, especially countries who have huge uh, investment in legacy infrastructure. If they're looking to transform, they are looking at taking on board not just what they need to do in the next two to three years, but what they have to do that will enable a much more sophisticated and futuristic model um, going forward. Cognizant of the fact that a lot of investment has to go in, they're willing to think about that investment uh, being made in a way that it keeps some future proof as well. 
not easy because as you know with with governments uh, generally there are a lot of vertical boundaries political boundaries that uh, stop from um, things moving very fast and very quickly and of course uh, the the pace of decision making in governments is not that uh, fast and you have a a mindset which is uh, much more about let's look at here and now and what we can do uh, to solve the problem today rather than thinking beyond the horizon and what to do then but there is an appetite and i'm see, starting to see many programs and initiatives being launched that do touch on this and try to push that envelope uh, out there especially when they're looking at establishing innovation labs or govtech labs all of these are mm-hmm. towards driving uh, this futuristic mindset and seeing what they can do beyond today the more i've been working with groups over in the Middle East, um, out where you are, I've been more impressed with kind of what you were talking about, how more futuristic uh, future thinking they are. Um, You can take a look at the the Vision 2030 that um, Saudi Arabia has laid out and and others where they really are taking a look at literally the next decade or, or the next two decades forward. And I think the ability to to have them adopt some of these newer emerging technologies is something that's, that's also very different than, uh, than other regions that I've worked in. Because like you said, there really is an appetite for them to um, be more futuristic um, on behalf of their citizens and give them the, the type of, of technology and experiences that, um, that they know that they want. So I, I've been really impressed with that. You, you've talked about how you're you're meeting with these leaders and kind of aligning to some of the the global public sector trends. What are some of those that you're seeing right now? The biggest is around how to uh, use data as a way to make better decisions. Um, so, data driven decision making or evidence based decision making is quite a, a big conversation right now, and particularly moving from you know. Um, the typical KPI measurement to looking at outcome measurement. And as you know, outcomes can only be measured, even KPIs with having the right kind of data, but outcome drives uh, a different kind of mindset. So that's a big shift I'm, I'm seeing in terms of how they are addressing this. And particularly when it comes to uh, this uh, change in leadership, leadership style. You know how to be more in, uh, more moving uh, as an inclusive and collaborative model of an organization. Those kind of trends um, are starting to emerge quite a lot, uh, especially in this region, which um, it takes uh, a different uh, approach. And how do you bring the voice of the citizen more and more into play? How do you? get data coming in that will show how policies are being uh, implemented successfully or not implemented successfully, other than just listening to the government agency or the ministry who is doing that particular work. I think when you talk about data-driven decision-making and voice of the citizen, what comes into my head is the ability for governments to adopt artificial intelligence to help support that. I mean, you and I were having a conversation about um, about data uh, prior to this show and how 80% of, of the world's data is actually unstructured. So how can you derive those insights from it? And the same around voice of the citizen, some of the, the really cool things I've been seeing is how governments can 
leverage even open data, social media, everything that's out there to to kind of get those insights from citizens, understanding sentiment, et cetera. Are there some ways that you're seeing AI being leveraged right now and, and some unique ways to help governments derive these insights from the data that they have? Yeah, there, there's a quite a few things happening. And uh, as you know, in, in this part of the world, there, there is, if I look at Dubai alone, they have a ministry for AI, which has been established. Uh, and that is being tasked with really looking at use cases for AI across government and how to really look at embracing this technology for the betterment of not just service delivery, better service delivery, but also how do you drive efficiencies in government as well. Typically, you know, a government is looking to do three things, you know, deliver the outcomes they want to deliver, they have committed to deliver, deliver them efficiently as possible. So it's not costing a huge amount to deliver them. And thirdly is to really ensure that the uh, stakeholders who this is being delivered for, citizens or users, are satisfied with with the uh, services they're receiving. And in particular, I'm seeing this shift from, you know, AI is particularly helping this to do is move from the more, um, what, reactive model of uh, services to predictive and proactive model of service delivery, where I have enough data to understand that your passport, for example, is expiring in three months time. And rather than waiting for you to apply for that, I will reach out to you and, and inform you that your passport is expiring. And I will then initiate the process and just ask you through maybe three clicks, whether you would like me to proceed with your new passport application and just to to ensure that uh, your details are correct. And after that kind of clarification, I just inform you, you'll be receiving your passport in you know, seven days or whatever. And if there's a need for a verification or uh, some kind of biometrics or facial recognition, then either you can do that through sitting at home or you just pop into some center where you can do it and job done. So that's the kind of, uh, you know, I would say, travel of direction I'm mm -hmm. seeing here. The same thing is happening in Saudi Arabia, where they've established, uh, again, an agency which is looking at uh, data and artificial intelligence. And they are also looking at building use cases that could um, potentially be leveraged for better service delivery and uh, efficiency in government. To kind of piggyback on your example around passports, I think the other, the other piece of this too is kind of how do you open up data from other disparate sources to also be not only just predictive, but just make things more convenient for citizens. So if you are going in to renew your passport, maybe there's also corresponding data that shows what countries are on the, the safe travel list or, or the not safe travel list, or do you need to apply for a visa? To, that needs to come into play. And, and those type of things can be dialed up as well to make things just more convenient. Um, I, I th we often think about the maybe the device that we're on, right? And, and is there an application that I can dial up on my, on my mobile device to do that? But I think it's even beyond that. It's really when you are on that platform, what are some of the things that you're actually doing to engage the citizen um, to to use uh, or better use the e-services that you have. I'm curious, I mean, obviously you're, you're always looking forward, right? Especially as a futurist, but when we take a look back over the past 18 months with the pandemic, 
What are some of the things that you've learned about government that are now helping you take a look into the future? And what are some of your thoughts on on where we might be going? The first biggest thing I would say is that governments uh, have realized they have a capability to move fast. And this is, I think, a big epiphany moment for a lot of governments who typically moved at a snail pace, as you know, not because they want to, because they have many processes and many governance things to be taken care of as they are dealing with the uh, funds that are normally given down to them to for deliver of services. So they are accountable and responsible for, for uh, keeping those things uh, safe and w- working well. So that's the one of the biggest thing I would say is there's a realization that we as a government can move as fast as the private sector organization as well. Do you do you think government can maintain that pace? Because I've had this conversation with with other folks, both on this podcast and off, and I, it's, I'm interested to get your take here. Do you think that pace can can keep up? My honest answer would be is honest. I don't know, but my leaning is towards. Uh, if I read between the lines and I, I think of what is happening now as we're getting kind of out of COVID, that it will be difficult because there was exceptional rules and procedures put in place to deal with this as a crisis. So Mm -hmm. if you go back to the main barrier of governments moving fast tends to be, you know, the the bureaucratic steps that you have to go through to even launch a policy. Exactly. And procurement in particular. The biggest barrier is procurement. And unless we move towards a different model of procurement, we will we will go back to the same place where we were before. Even through even within the COVID period that we are in, not everything has moved to that fast. But there are certain things that have been able to be moving at a uh, faster pace because of the exceptions that were created due to being a crisis rather than a normal situation. So absolutely, these things need to be, um, the barriers need to be removed if we really want to become a fast-moving government. And there are a number of things in that which we can talk about what what are the other things. But in, in principle, I think we are going to maybe move one step forward, but not as much as we thought we could. For, for example, if we look at uh, how governments are structured, then and how what is their working model? Agile is not a conventional working model at the moment in governments. So still, most governments are working using the waterfall effect uh, model of project management, or even looking at uh, you, if it's policy making. We're still going through that kind of process, while some governments are even on policymaking or regulation uh, creation, are starting to use techniques like creating regulatory labs and these kind of things to build iterative policies or regulations. But by by and large, most policy and regulations are top-down. So that means that the pace of things is going to still be slow. Whereas if you move towards a more agile model, then you, you know you're going to iterate and move forward as a, as a startup, right? Does The second mm-hmm. thing is around product management. So still we don't see the model of product management in government at a maturity level as we may see in the uh, private sector. And especially as we become a digital government, 
product management becomes more important because you're not just about launching websites and web uh, applications. You're actually uh, starting to provide services which need to be iterated and continue to be managed. And unless there is strong product management, not IT side, but from the business side, you will start, you will continue to see some of the slow pace uh, that we have seen in the past for products and services to be brought to market. So those those will be a couple of things that I would definitely mention on top of what I did earlier. Are there any governments that you're working with right now where you've seen them make some of these shifts successfully? I would say in this particular region, every government has some good examples of where they have moved towards that direction, but not as a whole. So you may find one government agency has embraced, not even a full agency, maybe, or a ministry, maybe they have uh, one team or one area has actually moved towards a more agile working model and starting to embed product management as an approach, but not as a whole. Recently, there was uh, a few days back, actually, a, no, was it, yeah, a few days back, there was an announcement from the UAE government about them changing their governance model again into moving from long-term plans into programs and initiatives, which will be shorter in duration. So they want to move away from these like, you know, five, 10-year plans to more shorter bursts of activities, which will drive more agility in the government itself. So that's an attempt from the top down to really drive a different way of working for the government. So be driven by programs, initiatives of a shorter duration. And they talked about bringing in agile and design thinking and these kind of uh, capabilities into government. What are some of the benefits, do you think, of doing this adoption in a whole of government approach? And at OpenText, I know we do uh, we do work with the government of Qatar and we just did a, the the entire citizen experience portal for them, uh, Hakumi, in the run up to the 2022 World Cup, and one of the really unique aspects of Hakumi is that it it's not only it's not only a federal level, but it's also a a localized level. It really is that complete whole of government uh, from a service delivery standpoint. And I think Qatar, with the size that it is, I think you're able to you're able to develop things like that in other countries. Uh, you can look, look at the uh, the United States, for example. It's, it could be very difficult to build a whole of government approach there when you have something federal, state, and local all intersecting. But what do you think some of the benefits are for a whole of government approach to this technology uh, deployment? Look, firstly, I would say is that whether we uh, accept it or not, but we need to move towards a model where we as a government, and doesn't matter what our structure of the country government is, or maybe let me use a broader term governance, because then you are talking about the legislative part and also the uh, the executive and the judiciary. So as a governance model, we need to realize that we are here to serve uh, citizens or users who of our services, and we need to start looking at them from a, uh, a perspective of how do we make the connection of all of the different things we, we do to govern a country in a way that does not burden the individual or individuals, and they feel as if they are being served by one governance model rather than 
multiple governance models. And if you, you use the example of the states, um, I've spoken to a number of different people who feel frustrated as a, as a citizen or a business when they have to deal with different layers of government to be able to just live and do their business. So, and technology today is enabling us to go from this vertical model to a horizontal model where we start to think of a citizen as one-to-one interaction or a business one-to-one interaction. And we push the complications, whether these are the structural state to um, local level, uh, sorry, federal state and local level, so the, or whether they are from one ministry to other. So we, we have some common elements of data that is shared between each one so we don't we they don't have to keep on asking for the same information again and again we know the example with estonia the kind of once only principle i know estonia is a, estonia is a smaller country and less complicated than the united states but that's what the citizens want that's what the business users want they want to make their life easy when it, it comes to dealing with government and from their perspective government is the whole government not they don't distinguish between state, provincial, or uh, federal level. You know. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And and even though you, I mean, you, you bring up Estonia, and it, it is a, a smaller country. It's they they really are best in class in, in what they're doing. And I think technology is at a point right now where it, it it can definitely help government scale. So you can take a small best practice and really scale it out by leveraging some of the the emerging technologies that are there. One of those is really foundational. It's cloud. As you're as you're talking about some of these things in in the back of my mind, that's where I'm going because native cloud deployments are one of the easiest way to scale some of these programs. But one of the challenges has been the the data sovereignty conversations, the security and compliance conversations around around shifting from off cloud to cloud, um, especially in government. But every industry has this challenge. How do you see the usage of data, especially based on the conversation we've been having and governments going from more reactive to proactive entities? How do we see the usage of data really impacting cloud adoption moving forward for government and help them scale out some of these programs? Extremely important element of the whole story, in my opinion, and especially uh, let's just look at not just data for proactive and predictive services, but also let's look at it from if I'm going to move to a model where I follow as a government, I am serving the citizen. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, I will serve you. So therefore, your data needs to cross boundaries. If you take the Estonia example, today as an Estonian citizen, you could be in any part of the world, and if you want to um, take part in the elections, you can do that online through the iVoting model. If you want to um, get your prescription from a pharmacy, if you're in a Scandinavian country where there is um, a interoperability um, between them, you can actually go to a pharmacy in, in Finland, for example, and get your prescription. Now, that's moving to a model where you're saying, I'm putting citizens at the center and saying, I want to serve you. You don't have to be in the country to be served. And if I'm, you have a right to get medication on, on, uh, on, on the cost of the state, then you can get it from anywhere you are um, in the world. Eventually, that's what they're trying to move towards. So that requires 
data moving, right? And and someone in Finland, for example, being able to recognize and identify that you are who you say you are and you have the entitlement to get this prescription. So that's going to only happen if you are sharing data and exchanging data, even if it's just for verification purposes. And cloud, of course, makes all of this agile. If you're going to continue with the old model of data and you're going to do uh, storage and uh, you're going to only have on-premise data storage, then these kind of things are going to be difficult. The other problem we've, we see with with cloud uh, moving at a pace it's moving now, that most of the uh, vendors around the world are starting to discourage or stop giving licenses and services on on-premise uh, through the on-premise model. So you will only be able to get them if you are on the cloud. So if the travel of direction is that, whether we like it or not, as governments, we need to think about cloud as a absolutely central part of our strategy to build our uh, digital government to be able to just operate and serve um, the citizens and, and whoever we need to serve. What have been some of the roadblocks that you've seen that are preventing government from adopting cloud, uh, even beyond just the security apprehension, which I think is is slowly, um, I think moving away as some of these uh, some of these hyperscalers have have gotten their security controls to a level that are analogous to on prem. What have some of the other roadblocks been? The main is uh, honestly speaking about a mindset being understanding what it means because the depth of understanding of um, cloud and how data can still be from a data residency perspective it still can be resident in the country where you're operating rather than it going out of the country so those kind of um, i would say misperceptions or uh, misunderstandings are uh, the biggest barrier the more knowledgeable you become about this and you know that there are ways around the data residency challenge and the security challenge and the privacy challenge, then you see movement going forward. But it's it's good to see, especially through this COVID period, the more conversation, uh, it's a more and more conversation around this and acceptance of that we need to really embrace the cloud. For example, in Saudi Arabia, there is um, a, a strategy that they have a, a policy they have built for for the kingdom, uh, both at a national level for the whole country, but for government, they want to move towards the cloud environment. They are even talking about um, a drive to push the adoption of cloud across governments and in a proactive way and help them with that transition from the legacy models uh, you know, uh, of data being stored at prem- on-premise to, to the cloud. And they will be putting some policies and some, um, you can say, uh, tools in place and some support in place for that to happen. And also open source. They are starting to more and more talk about open source uh, as a mechanism to push uh, agile building of services and uh, moving forward faster as also a mechanism. So, And that also, you know, it will require cloud to be at the center of their play. I think we're even seeing, even even recently with the, the United Kingdom, they've been having these conversations around data sovereignty and 
they're even easing some of those restrictions that they had around the data having to remain um, in country and some of it being uh, offshore in in some of their their regions in India. So I'm hoping we get to a point where some of these challenges around data at rest can change to open up and introduce more more cloud adoption, which I think is going to bring emerging or more emerging tech to the government enterprise. And I think anybody who has gone through um, a cloud compliance process like FedRAMP or PBMM and IRAP understands some of the challenges and, and inhibitors that that those things can be, especially if you're a small company trying to drive some of these uh, these emerging technologies to government. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where there could be a global standard around this? I hope so, because for me, the key enabler for cross-border movement of data is going to be having a global standard and also a some kind of global protocol between countries to enable this to happen while still maintaining their uh, security and data privacy issues as well you know and if we think about i mean we were talking about this example of the passport earlier but if we took a a different approach and, and thought more what i call reimagining then you would ask the first question which is what is actually passport used for what is it really the purpose of a passport and you come to this conclusion that it's to enable travel and today you and i have become our own passports because facial recognition and biometrics recognizes us and we could frankly without a passport travel anywhere in the world provided there is protocols in place to for sharing of data and exchange of data so therefore the forward view must be and this is just one example i'm giving and the second i gave you about uh, estonia looking at their their citizens having to do you know receive services anywhere in the world eventually that's kind of their goal plan then that is not going to be possible unless you are going to allow for data to flow and be accessible by you as a citizen or someone who is providing a service let's say a doctor to you to see your data so that data needs to move somehow or at least be visible to whoever has to provide the service so i do think having some kind of global standard and protocols in place for interoperability are a must for us to really unlock the potential for our citizens and businesses globally i think especially too as and you and i were talking about this before the more and more governments are starting to to collaborate and share share data as a means to tackle some of the challenges that we face as a global community like the the pandemic and the way data was used to understand and and create um safer environments for citizens around the world i think that's one way that um that we've been able to collaborate and that data is is one of the key enablers for us to to be where we are right now so that uniformity across compliance is is something that i think will continue to make us much more of a global community especially as we as citizens move around the world and and interact when when we think about and we've had we've had these discussions today around citizen experience 
what are some of the things that you think government should be prioritizing as they look to evolve what their citizen experience looks like? Yeah, at the heart of uh, the first thing is really they need to put citizens at the heart of their thinking. And I, I use the word citizens very broadly. It's anyone, any stakeholder that is being served by a government uh, or a at any point in time, it could be a citizen who lives, or it could be a resident uh, who lives in that particular country, it could be a visitor, etc. But take the example of COVID today, and uh, I, uh, when I travel through the region, look at my experience today. I have had to, for track and trace purposes, download an app for UAE. I've had to download an app for Bahrain when I was there. I had to download an app for Saudi Arabia when I'm there. And the same thing I have to do for every GC country and even any country in the world if they have a track and trace. Now think from a user perspective, if I'm a global traveler and I'm traveling 5, 10, 15, 20 countries, how inconvenient is that? That you are making me not um, download apps, but also give information time and time again where there could have been some kind of level of exchange between the different countries on the information. And that would have not just made it easy and simpler for me, but it would have also made much more effective track and trace uh, for, for their purposes as well. So these kind of things, when we start to think of a holistic experience of the citizen, governments need to start moving towards that direction and seeing what they're doing, maybe in isolation is the right thing, but for the user, this is going to create different kind of barriers and challenges. Now, if you are only living in that country, not traveling, fine, that experience is not going to be impacted. But when you have a huge population, especially in this part of the world, which travel most of the time, then you are creating extremely difficult experiences. So that mindset shift, sorry, that mindset shift from what I call a technology first led approach to a purpose or experience first led approach needs to be at the heart of um, the thinking of governments for the future. We shouldn't be just driven by, let's just build an app and put it out there. Think of how many apps governments are building in one country, and sometimes one government agency is building three, four, five, six apps, and they have a portal. So that simplification of relationship or interaction with the government is extremely important. And they definitely need to bring into, into play the what we talked about earlier, voice of the citizen. How do we continuously get information from citizens or users of government services to see how well am I um, operating as a government in delivering my my promises to my citizens and also to bring uh, bring citizens and users into the process of co-creating whether it's policies or whether it's services or regulations. So it becomes much more driven by the needs and, and expectations and requirements of uh, citizens, not just uh, policymakers. Before I give you a chance for some final thoughts, I'm curious while I have you here, what are your predictions then? Let's say over the next three to five years, especially coming out of the, the COVID acceleration around digital transformation and e-government, what are, your, what are some of your predictions for government um, and how they're gonna adopt technology to become more outcomes-based and more citizen-centric? I think uh, data will play a very significant part going forward. And uh, I think it become more and more uh, prevalent and important uh, across 
every part of government, not just some parts of government. So that's a big shift I'm, I'm seeing. And I'm seeing it go beyond just uh, for decision-making purposes, but also for efficiencies. Uh, and I see the data actually becoming more of a enabler for bottom bottom up rather than top down policy making and uh, service delivery so that's one one big thing the second i think there is going to be reflection on how governments uh, operate uh, we already seen that from the ua government where they have um, rethought the way they want to uh, operate as a government and they're starting to think about at least from moving from a you know long term uh, stra- strategy driven plan driven to more program driven initiative driven outcome driven uh, approach so that's the second thing and i think third is going to be around you know this what model are we going to settle with when it comes to um, wor- working model are we going to still continue with the physical working model or are we going to move more towards the virtual model of working and or a hybrid in between that are the three things that i feel are the main topics that we will see play out over the next three to five years yeah we didn't even really get a chance to talk about kind of what a remote working environment could look like um from a global government perspective um so i think we over the next few months we might need to have you back on to to take a look at kind of where things are at the time, and we can have some of those discussions. Um, I, I've really enjoyed some of the insights you shared today, and would love to give you a chance to leave any final thoughts for our listeners. Thank you, Brian. It's really been a pleasure to uh, be with you it, here today. It's a topic which is quite interesting, you know, because we're trying to take uh, take a more forward-looking view than backward. I would just uh, like to maybe finish off by by saying that. You know, the three things in my view that we really need our countries to start thinking about. Number one, really look at reimagining uh, for the digital era, not digital transformation. There's a there's a subtle but quite a significant difference. And I've already given an example of the passport and not needing a passport if you start to reimagine. The second is really we should be looking to move uh, from a very technology first led approach to purpose and experience. So whenever we are looking to leverage the power of technology, we are very clear what problem we're solving for, what benefit are we trying to derive from this investment. And number three is look at taking uh, this approach of what I call inclusion by design, we should be cognizant of the fact that still 50% of the population is not connected in one for one reason or another. So everyone is not digitally literate or they don't have access. If we just uh, go at the speed we are going, we have a high probability of creating a further contribution or contributing further to the digital divide. And we need to keep that in mind that whilst, yes, going digital first is the right thing for us to do, we should make sure that we are not leaving behind individuals, companies, etc., that will not be able to leverage from this and it becomes difficult for them to operate. So governments will need to put in place programs and policies that will help to uplift the capability of individuals and businesses and help them get access to these services 
um, in a way that it doesn't uh, disadvantage them. And in the in the short term, it may mean that we still need to continue with a digital first but not only policy and create physical spaces where you can um, provide access to people who don't have so assisted models but we should keep in mind this whole concept of uh, you know inclusion by design that's a really good point i'm glad you brought that up and it's a great one to end on because the digital equity conversation especially during the the pandemic was one that um, I think really rose to the surface and inclusion through technology is definitely something that is very much scalable, um, not just within a, uh, a local uh, conversation or even a, a country conversation, but a global conversation. So I think that's a, a really good takeaway. Mohammed, I've really enjoyed this conversation again. Thanks. Thanks for being here and, uh, and taking the time from, from me and being all the way around the world to join us. So thank you again. Thank you, Brian. Much appreciated. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you access your podcasts. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittis Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.